As you heard in the welcome, the theme for this month is attention. And we have spent the last couple of weeks looking at how profoundly important it can be to truly pay attention to one another. It sounds simple enough, but we know, practically speaking, how hard it can be. It requires intention. It takes practice. It is not a given, but it is a gift. And it takes practice not only to offer that sort of intentional attention, but also to receive it. In a world swirling with opportunities for distraction, along with the growing feeling that it is almost a cultural duty to pay attention to all the shiny objects that the media prefers on an hourly basis, it can be somewhat jarring, shocking, scary even, to realize another person is taking the time to focus their attention on me. Why scary? Looking into another's eyes makes us feel vulnerable because we are not only the looker, but the looky. If I am looking into your eyes, it means you are looking into mine. And while many of us are comfortable giving, which offers at least the illusion that we retain some control over circumstances, we tend to be less comfortable receiving, which brings home the reality that we are in need of others just as others are in need of us. And as Barbara Brown Taylor speaks of silence as being countercultural and taking practice, the same may be said of being present to one another, focusing our attention on another person. By being attentive, we are inviting the other person, too, to be attentive. And after a point, as with all deep connections, it is impossible to separate the giver and the receiver as we are all simply there, or rather, here. So I want to raise this up, this value of lovingly focusing our attention on another person as something precious and valuable and important. And today, I wish to also talk about another way of focusing attention, which can, in the words of our mission, deepen connections. There was a congregation I served briefly as an intern minister, which had a long and proud humanist tradition. It did not call itself a church or a congregation, but rather a Unitarian society. Long-time members were getting a little nervous about new people coming in who were looking for something a little more, well, religious. You could see the color drain from the faces of some long-time members as people at the orientation classes talked about seeking spirituality. And the woman who was a founding member and board president at the time may have even started trembling a bit when a younger man asked about the possibility of having Vespers services. (laughs) Now understand, this rather strained relationship was a two-sided affair, of course. The spiritual seekers who had joined the congregation seemed just as certain as the humanists that there could be little common understanding between them. So I had concluded from my admittedly limited and naive perspective that because of the fear they had that they would never be able to agree with each other on the important questions, 
they had silently and quite possibly unconsciously agreed not to talk much about what they believed within the congregation. (laughs) They had this feeling that if they ever just laid out what they really felt, they would see the distance was so vast that they couldn't continue as a congregation. So while they had decided that they couldn't maybe accept one another, they figured that they could indeed tolerate one another as long as no one brought up those questions that were at the heart of their lives (laughs) in the congregation. Makes sense, right? Just keep that stuff to yourself. Understand this is filtered through my perception, but I believe that's at least part of what was going on there. And my guess is that this syndrome is not so unique in Unitarian Universalist congregations. As we are intentional about welcoming a diversity of theological perspectives, but often feel confused or hesitant about how to do so honestly and effectively. I discovered, however, thank goodness, that congregations can safely and happily move beyond that syndrome of hold our breath and hope for the best tolerance. There was one experience I had in this Unitarian society that speaks to that movement. Though I was involved, I didn't and couldn't have made it happen. I simply bore witness to it as I led a class on, of all things, the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we approached the book not as literal truth nor dogmatic teachings, but as a set of stories. And when it comes to stories, you have to admit Genesis is like greatest hits of the Bible. It's got Adam and Eve, it's got Cain and Abel, it's got Noah and the ark, it's got the Tower of Babel, Abraham and Isaac, Lot and his daughters, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, and that amazing technicolor dream coat. (laughs) These are some high drama stories that can't help but get people talking, and we tried to connect our responses back to things from our own lives to respond to the people and the situations and the sometimes humor and the often awful brutality and to the extreme levels of family dysfunction that pervaded throughout by explicitly connecting with those things through the prism of our own individual experiences. Twelve people from the congregation This was a congregation of about 70 with representative members from both camps, if you will, humanist and spiritual, attended regularly over six weeks and found to their admitted astonishment that they could talk about deep and meaningful things without splintering the congregation. In fact, they felt stronger as a community as they not only learned more about the people who they were sure they'd never understand, but also learn new things about people that they thought they knew inside and out. And the acceptance they discovered for one another had very little to do with agreement or approval, but arose from what they learned about one another from being engaged in a common project. Rather than focusing attention on the perceived differences between them, they focused together on something outside themselves, which allowed them to connect with one another in a different way. It reminds me of some of those studies 
about the differences in how women and men communicate, how they engage in conversation. And while these studies hold some validity, I am sure, I think we have come to recognize that gender is not such a fixed category, that much has to do with how we are socialized, and that such studies often lose relevance when brought down to a personal level. But I want to bring up this particular conclusion from one or more of the studies only to unpack it in light of what it means to pay attention. The study showed that women tend to communicate facing one another, while men often stand shoulder to shoulder when in conversation, not looking at each other, but looking out. And when I first read this, I thought, yes, that makes sense. <laughs> men are not enculturated to be comfortable with most any form of intimacy, and looking at one another, as I mentioned earlier, brings with it a certain vulnerability. This resonated with me, especially when combined with my introverted personality type and the fact that I was brought up in a Midwestern, Lutheran, Scandinavian-rooted household, of which Garrison Keillor said, when we talk to one another, we stare at our feet. Unless you're an extrovert, then you stare at the other person's feet. <laughs> I've really come out of my shell. You will notice me staring at your feet. So I was thinking women had it right and we men were stunted in our emotional maturity. And I still do think that in a lot of ways. But I have come to understand that when it comes to paying attention, there is room for both communication styles. Sometimes we can deepen connections by focusing our attention on one another. And sometimes we can even more effectively deepen connections by focusing together on something outside ourselves. When strangers meet, each pays special attention to the other. Andrea said in our chalice lighting, each is called to serve something larger than the self. Those are the words of Fulgence Dagi Jamana. When strangers meet, each pays special attention to the other. Each is called to serve something larger than the self. At our best, that is what happens here. I've had many people here tell me, and this is without bribes or prompting or leading questions or any form of steering the conversation in this direction, People tell me stories of how they came to know and really appreciate another member of the congregation through working beside them on a common goal or project. The auction, the elections, the rummage sale, the women's retreat, the camp out, the grounds, in committees, in services, in the kitchen, in classrooms, the list goes on. But the message is clear. This is maybe not a person I would ever have sought out. This was an unexpected connection. This came about not because we had focused attention on each other, but because we had focused together on a common goal outside of ourselves. And something about that experience allowed us to turn, see, and appreciate one another. Come, sing a song with me.
Come, plan the auction with me. Come, work the elections with me. Come, take care of the grounds with me. Come, clean the kitchen with me that I might know your mind. Isn't that cool? I remember being puzzled the first few times I encountered the song that the choir sang for our prelude today. Come sing a song with me that I might know your mind. Singing? Don't I have to talk with you to know your mind, ask you your opinions, listen to your ideas? But the knowing in that hymn is not about gathering information. Nor does it mean only thoughts when it talks about mind. It is talking about the kind of connection that happens when we are joined in common purpose and come to know one another through the experience. The Episcopal service that Barbara Brown Taylor describes may not resonate with all of us here, but it's not too hard to translate, is it? We sit here together saying sonorous words in unison, listening to language we do not hear anywhere else in our lives. We covenant to respect and trust each other. We are this church. We are its heart, its hands, its voice. The words sound different when June says them than they do when John says them. When spoken by a young mother, they sound different than when they are spoken by a grandfather. They may sound different when spoken by the same person from one week to the next. Sometimes they are simply recited, read off the page, or repeated from memory. But sometimes they percolate up through the silt and gravel of real people's lives so that the meaning in them is fluid, not fixed. We also sing things we could more easily say. From all that dwell below the skies, may your mind be open to new learning. None of us would probably dream of doing that in the grocery store. But by doing it here, we remember that there is another way to address one another. Where else do many of us sing anymore, especially with other people? And sometimes I just want to stay in the song, like the piece the choir just did, but also in the hymns that we sing together, because I get a wonderful view of you all singing together from up here. And we are quiet together, which is something else that does not happen many other places in our lives. It takes some practice, but it is a powerful experience. Come be quiet with me that I might know your mind. We come together and focus our attention in all these ways on those things which we hold of greatest worth. That's what worship is all about. When strangers meet, new possibilities emerge, new experiences, new ways of understanding, and new ways of taking action. When strangers meet, each pays special attention to the other. Each is called to serve something larger than the self. 
Sometimes we join together to focus our attention on something larger and are then inspired to pay special attention to one another. Sometimes we pay special attention to one another and are then inspired to join together in focusing our attention on something larger. Many times these ways of paying attention combine and connect and overlap in beautiful ways. That is what a congregation is for. It is that to which we welcome you new members today. And it's true. Congregational life is not all songs and roses. It is worth noting that the Barbara Brown Taylor reading came from a memoir entitled Leaving Church. It is about how and why she gave up parish ministry and chronicles some of the hard parts about religious community. I don't mean to romanticize the difficulties of the task we have set for ourselves in our mission. It can be hard. Sometimes we are paying attention to things that frustrate us. Sometimes we wish others would pay better attention to the larger goal or to the work at hand or to us. Sometimes we long for something to distract us from the hard work of community. But when life brings sadness or frustration or disappointment or hurt and our joy takes flight, we still rest in the love holding all. We can join together round our chalice light for we belong to the love holding all. So come, sing a song with me. <laughs>